Welcome to the Work in Progress podcast. I'm your host, Peter Wong. This show is created on the belief that no matter who we are, where we are in life, we are all work in progress. In each episode, I have candid conversations with people that I admire and uncover actionable wisdom that you can apply to your life. Today, we're starting off with my friend, Mark Webster. He's a creative, tenacious, self-taught maker who now leads audio products at Adobe. I hope you enjoy our first episode. Mark, great to see you again. It's been a while since we've seen each other. Last time was actually physically at the Adobe office, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe right? 2018. Yeah, 2018. It's a great office. It's very quiet. I still remember yeah. at that little it's, corner. Yeah. Uh, at the time, you were working on a very different product. Maybe. Yeah, we were working on maybe Adobe XD when you when we That's first right. talked, or when we last talked. Uh, yeah, we were on the Adobe XD team for the first two years of our. Yeah, so what is now five year Adobe journey. Five, I know five years, Mara. I, five I, years I, next I, month. I didn't expect you to be at Adobe for five years. None of us did. <laughs> I know. No, it's been it's been quite a ride. It's been a we have time. a lot to cover today, so we'll get started. I'm very excited to talk to you today because I know you and I met years back when you started a company called Sayspring. But you also have someone who not only started one company or two companies, you started a number of companies. Yes. Now, so I would love to talk, and you also, there's so much to cover about you. I'm not even sure what sequence. New, big New York Harlem, right? Yeah, I mean, right. I, could give, I could give you my quick spiel. Yeah, let's talk about background. Your, your background. Yeah, so grew up on Long Island, then went to school at the Fashion Institute of Technology in mm-hmm. Chelsea, New York, yep. for marketing and advertising. Oh. I thought I was going to be a Don Draper ad executive. Uh, and then, uh, that was during the first dot-com boom. And so I started working for a tech PR firm. One of the first, uh, accounts I worked on as a, as a PR intern was four guys up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, launching a company called Akamai. Mm, and so that company did, yeah. So just totally got hooked on tech. I started working full-time when I was still in school. Uh, totally fell in love with it. Kind of, I'd always been, you know, I was more, I would say a marketing person and maybe a design person. Um, but fell in love with it, started working full-time when I was in school, had the dubious honor of graduating May 2000, a month after the NASDAQ <laughs> fell apart. Uh, so ended up going to the safety of big media and I worked at the MBA for five years. And mm-hmm. so the MBA was, I worked in creative services. So it was essentially like a internal agency for the rest of the league and the teams did a whole bunch of tech stuff there. Uh, introduced Adobe After Effects to our broadcast graphics production com- mm. uh, suite, which was fun. That was kind of my first big Adobe thing. As part of that, I uh, I got to take over the office of the former creative director. And How? Uh, his office had a PC uh-huh. and a Mac. And the Mac had all the macromedia and Adobe software. Oh, yeah. And that is how I learned all the macromedia and Adobe software. Oh, macromedia. Sort of started those. my career as a generalist. The flash days. Yep. Flash days, fireworks days, Streamweaver days. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, did did that for a while, then got into a bunch of different tech companies, a SaaS company, and then, you know, all kind of leading up to uh, working for a great company that then fell apart in the financial crisis. And so I mm. decided, I was like, I think I'm sick of working for people. So I did some consulting and that led to my first startup. So I started a company called SideTour, which was an activities marketplace, very similar to like what Airbnb is doing with their experiences business. Yeah. Uh, and then we ended up getting acquired by Groupon. I was at Groupon for a while. 
Uh, Groupon, I always consider kind of my my starter acquisition. It was like where I learned all the things you're not supposed to do. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was there for about 18 months. Uh, Went on a journey for a year, kind of figuring out what was next. Uh, Led to, and and we'll come back to this, but led to what became Sayspring. Uh, And then Sayspring was a journey. I taught myself how to code to build Sayspring. Launched it. And then within less than a year of raising money, got acquired by Adobe. And then I have been at Adobe for five years. Wow. Which is wow. Which blows my mind. I think this is yeah. me. I mean, I think it's almost probably the longest job I've ever had. I know. It's actually really very rare, especially in these days. I mean, to have to be in one place for five years. I also know that someone like you, who's always wanted to do, right, have ideas, want to try it out, right? That kind of itch. Um, but there's a lot to talk about Adobe. I want to go back a little bit, actually. Let's do it. Talk about your upbringing a little bit, because I do think that all of us grew up differently. I grew up in Taiwan, right, in a very academic family. Like, what was your upbringing like? Yeah, so I grew up on Long Island, uh, out in a town called Farmingville, which is kind of halfway in between the city and the Hamptons. Um, typical middle class, you know, upbringing. Um, my mom stopped working when they. I have a brother or an older sister and younger sister, uh, and. Stopped working when she had kids and then went back to work when we were maybe 12. And then my dad worked in marketing and sales, uh, selling like radar systems in the defense industry. Uh, But my dad was also one of those guys who like just does everything himself. Like I, we never went to a mechanic when, you know, he he bought me my first car, a really old Jeep Cherokee when I was like 16 with a shop manual. Wow. I was like, here you go. Learn how to do that. Um, had a bunch of rental properties that my, uh, dad had when we were growing up that we had to do all the work in. So he mm. would hire me to come paint and do the plumbing with him. And so I can build a house, I can wire a house. And so just kind of set up this whole, I think kind of, you can figure out anything. My dad always, his, his big thing was always, if you can read, you can figure out anything. If you can and read, you can figure out. Been mm-hmm. like, yeah. And that's been like the blueprints of my life. I'm just kind of figuring. Yeah, out you're kind of like that. All these different things. hands-on, figure it out type of person. Not afraid to jump in. Um, no. Did you put up that panel yourself behind you? Did you have someone do that? So thing? I didn't actually. I put up the, the painting, but no, I didn't do this place. I was lucky enough in this place. It was this place was pretty much done. Some crazy people had spent three years renovating this place and then sold it like a year later. Oh, really? And so we. <laughs> Ended up having to do nothing in this place. Which oh, that's incredible. That's lucky. So you're get, so that's your, your, so your dad's work ethic and the approach is a big influence for you. Huge influence. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because, and, and you know this, like once you start to have kids and you get to a certain age, you start to like reflect on like your parents and then yes. what you learn from your parents. Right. And so I think that was, in, you know, in the la- my daughter's nine. So I would say in the last 10 years of kind of reflection, I realized that that's, that's like the narrative thread through my life of mm-hmm. like learning, basically being super independent, being empowered to think you can just figure out anything has then, you know, what led to me think as a marketing person, thinking I could be a designer, thinking I could start mm-hmm. a company, thinking I could, you know, do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has just, you know, it had a, a massive impact on me and I had a great upbringing uh, you know, my parents are still both with us. You know, I have a great relationship with my sisters. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like no no complaints. It was, 
you know, very, very struggle free. It was a very like comfortable middle class upbringing. That's cool. And do you teach your, so your daughter's nine, actually mine is just turned 10 in December. Um, yeah. Little Nina, little Nina. Nina. Is, uh, do you impart that on her too? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. She's, she is my mini me. She's the best, super independent. She tonight she's coming home and is the guest speaker at the PTA meeting for her school to represent the voice of the students. Wow. (laughs) She's yeah. She's just an incredible kid. It's funny too. Cause so we had, you know, we had Nina and then, um, kind of when you would start to make the decisions about having a second kid is when I was doing say spring. And so mm-hmm. we always kind of joked that like say spring was our second, second kid. Because kind of the time the say spring journey kind of got to a more comfortable place. Then Nina was like four and we were like, I don't think we're ready to go back to diapers. So it turned out we were one and done. So when you have one child, there's just this project. <laughs> you yeah. put like everything into that one person. Oh, so yeah. we are just best friends. She's a ton of fun. It's been great. Oh, that's oh, lucky Nina. Yes. I can, I, I mean, in some ways I can relate, but I have three kids. So it's definitely very different because my project has become like a portfolio that I'm managing <laughs> versus like an individual project. You got to spread the risk. <laughs> <laughs> portfolio. Uh, there's a little chart. So I where, draw. Where, what kind of brothers and sisters did you have? Like, where do you fall in the mix? So I'm actually number two in the family of two. Did you have brothers and sisters? So yeah, the older sister and the younger sister. So only boy, oh, only right boy. in the middle. My older sister is exactly two and a half years older. My younger sister is exactly two and a half years younger. Oh, middle kid. So like smack in the middle. Yeah, which is also clearly part of like my independence, my, you know, overlooked oh. from day one. <laughs> like the middle yeah, child. Yeah, the middle one, like, kind of like you. Her, her name is Eve. She's seven now and she's like a complete, she is a wild card, I call her. We call her. Maybe I call her, I'm not sure. In my head, she's a wild card very independent she would be taking on projects but she's also kind of like me so i'm the second one but my brother's only 13 months older than me so we would treat it pretty much the same way what he does is what i do i keep following his footsteps but i'm very different from my creative point of view i like to go and explore be different or do something that i've envisioned my head right like my birthday i want to go to ocean side and fly my drone because i really want to I actually love new perspectives, even though I've already crashed one drone. I have this feeling of, <laughs> I want to fly the drone. I have a picture in my head, the pier. I would just fly over. You know, you, you have this shot in your mind, right? Like, I want to get that shot. It's so peaceful. There, it's windy. I was, I was like, oh no, I should look up, you know, the, whatever the wind resistance, can it fly through it? Anyways, it took too long to look up. I said, no, I'm just going to fly it. But I said, I will fly over the pier so that if it falls, it falls on the pier. Anyways, long story. But my middle wife, Eve, is very much like that too. She would want to do projects. And my wife, April, she would, she would say, he was doing something again. We have no idea what she's doing. I said, you know, just let her be. Because it may not be clear at the beginning, but at the end, I know she has a vision. So, so yeah. yeah, I mean, that's similar. You know, I think that being the middle child also gives you that space to explore that, right? Like the first kid got all the attention. Mm-hmm. Second kid comes along and then like the third kid's the baby. Mm-hmm. And so like the second kid kind of left to their own devices, but also an opportunity to kind of spread their wings and be more creative. Yeah. So now let's talk about a few of the startups. I know you had your start acquisition. I never heard of the term. Yes. Before. I love that one. The start acquisition. Was it hard? What was it like as you're starting out? Did you know startup? Just- yeah. So 
<clears throat> it's interesting. So I very intentionally wanted to be in the startup world and I wanted to start my own Why? company. I'd worked for a bunch of startups. It kind of felt like I had 10, 11 years professional experience and kind of was ready to, to jump in. Uh, and so started doing the TechCrunch Disrupt hackathons. Wow. And that was very much a very intentional entry into being part of the startup world. Right. Cause especially this is, you know, 2010. So New York was just kind of starting. Yeah. TechCrunch is huge in the New York scene. It was, it was huge at the time, right? It was the first time. (laughs) No, remember. It was the first time Disrupt had come to New York. And so he did the hackathon, uh, and built something really cool, but didn't win anything, but also looked at, okay, the people who won, how did they think about what wins at the hackathon at TechCrunch? Mm. So then. A couple months later, they had the San Francisco one. So me and my buddy flew out to San Francisco. Oh. And we did another project there and did the hackathon again. Serial hackathon. So, yes. And we got and we got honorable mention. Ooh. So I was like, all right, all right, we're, we're figuring this out. And then- Wait, was it the same idea or different idea the second time? No, different idea. So oh. the first idea was a project called Flymoto, where you could tweet and use a hashtag of a flight number, and it would check you into that flight. And then there was a whole experience where you could track how many miles you've flown. It was almost like Foursquare-ish yeah. for flights. Yeah. So you could become like the king of an airport. Uh, oh. It was at the time JetBlue was that. So we we launched it, didn't get much recognition for it at the, at the conference. But then JetBlue, two months later, did this all-you-can-jet promotion where for $500, you could fly as much as you wanted for one month. And so a whole bunch of people did it. And we launched it targeting all-you-can-jet. Cool. Yeah. And then it became a whole thing where people were tracking all their flights. We'd have a bug and everyone would panic. My miles aren't on my leaderboard. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they get really excited, but there's no business there. The second one was something we called Pinocchio. And the whole point was to lie to your social network. So you connected it to your social network. So your Foursquare, Facebook, Twitter. Yep. You'd pick a story uh, on a date with somebody, meeting with clients. And then over a set schedule, like a couple hours, it would check you into a restaurant, post a picture of food, and basically tell a story for a couple hours of where you were. That's fascinating. So we got honorable mention for that one. And then we come back and I was talking to a bunch of two of my other buddies and we, and my buddy had just spent the summer traveling around the world. And so he basically came back and was like, I have this idea to be able to bring those like authentic kinds of experiences into your own city. And so that became what was side tour. Mm. Uh, and, and right around the time that we had this idea, Techstars, was, which is a, a tech yeah. accelerator here in New York, was launching their second class. Mm-hmm. And so we applied to it. And through that application process, TechCrunch Disrupt came to New York again. So we went in and did the hackathon again. A third time. And got writ- yeah, written up in TechCrunch. It was called Joinable. And it was all about... Um, voicemail and email over the phone for the homeless and jobless so that if you don't have an email address you could still get speech to text oh that's cool check messages yeah Mm. it was fine we built on top of twilio the hackathon was on sunday and they present everything on wednesday all the like award winners of the hackathon at the conference and uh like that monday i think it was or tuesday there was a really bad tornado in the middle of the country and so there's disaster relief and it was in the news. And so we, all of a sudden we had a bunch of organizations reaching out to us to want to use Joinable because they had read about it in TechCrunch. So we ended up sending an email to Michael Arrington and we're like, hey, this has gotten a great reception. 
we think you should consider us a winner and put us on stage on Wednesday. <laughs> he was like, great, let's do it. And so we got presented as a winner of the hackathon. The two guys who were managing, Dave Tish, who was managing, the managing director of Techstars at the time was in the audience. Oh, yes. Uh, and I think that helped push us into Techstars. You're and bringing back a lot of memories right now. Techstars. I know. That was a good time Even in New York. Names. They, yeah, I, yes. It, it's, it was, it's, it was Adam a, Rothenberg. Yes, that's right. Guys. Yeah, they were they were our managing directors. It's, it's, I've forgot, you know, I've, it feels so long ago. It's not that, even not that long, maybe 15 years ago, but there was an era. It's still, it's still, it's still long, I guess. <laughs> I guess it's perspective. I just, you know, we're just getting old, that's all. Yeah, we're all getting old and nostalgic too. Um, but that was actually a very special period in New York. It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, it was a lot it of also, fresh fruit. It was, and it was, you know, and that's when you had your four squares, right? That's and like right. all the, that's all right. the, so the, the new darlings and Techstars felt like such validation that yeah. we were like, oh, we're like part of the startup community. Mm -hmm. We spent a year and a half very intentionally trying to get into it. And then we were like, we're here, right? And, and raised money from Foundry oh, and Foundry. RRE. Yeah. Yeah. And we were just like, oh, we've, we've arrived. This is, this is our shot. And then, yeah, built a side tour business. And did you, so what did joinable become side tour over time? Yeah, joinable, the hackathon projects ended up just being the hackathon projects. And I think joinable is actually something that we may have pursued yeah. had we not gotten into tech stars with side tour mm. because it did start to get a little bit of interest and traction, but at the same time we got into tech stars with side. I tour. see. So we focused on that. And you've had so many different ideas. So endless. So brain never stops. Did they just keep coming? Keeps coming. That was what was fun about hackathons is like, you could just run with something. You'd stay up all night. I think that it was like something like it started at 6 PM at night and you'd present at like 10 30 in the morning. So you basically just stayed that up all night. Good old like, days. Yes. Oh, it was awesome. So fun. I mean, I'm way too old to do any of that. Now. Yeah, exactly. This is why I feel like I, I, I was like, I can't come with any good idea after eight o'clock. <laughs> I'm done. Um, that's interesting because did you, would you, did you join the hackathons first, then come with the idea? Or you have like a notebook of ideas. I just need venues to go and actually pursue. It was joining the hackathon first. And then wow. what are we going to build there? Yeah. Oh. I mean, and because it was, we, we had no intention of trying to launch a startup or build a startup in the hackathon. So the pressure the hackathon was literally, power. it was just a project. Let's Plenty. just go in and be interesting. Right. So like, Fly, I mean, Flymoto was awesome. Uh, you could have potentially tried to make a startup out of it, um, but we were just we were just there, like love of the game, yeah, and just building something. And 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 our because as participating in the hackathon gave you tickets to the conference, <laughs> so then you get to go to the conference, <laughs> to the conference. right? And I couldn't afford those tickets. Yes, see, the prize was much smaller than the time. It was like I want to get tickets to the conference. Um, that was it. That was, was it. it. Um, so, Saitor, what made you? to go say, it's not a project. I want to make it a business. I'm going to raise money. Yeah, I think a few things. I think looking back, I think the fact that at the time there was four of us and then one of the guys left pretty early on. Um, but I think just like the conviction of like having some of your friends who want to go do the thing too. Mm. And it's pretty rare for everybody to just align with like, this is the thing we're going to go do. That was a starting point. And then Techstars helped. I mean, getting into Techstars and was like, this, you know, a, tons of confidence, yeah. like lots of people 
apply with their six month old, one year old startup to accelerators. We went in there day one, like, what are we going to do? <laughs> we were starting from scratch. It was also just a super captivating idea. I mean, it was a super fun business. It was, we had amazing experiences on there. One was, I think one of our biggest attention grabbers was it was lunch with a Wall Street banker turned monk at a monastery on the Lower East Side. Did you have to create that like, kind of experience or did you just curate? No. So what we did is we found interesting people and we kind of pitched them on ideas. And, and a big thing, which whether or not this was a good idea for the business, it probably wasn't, mm -hmm. but we didn't want anything that was on other platforms. Like oh, we wanted unique brand stuff. new experiences that's unique to this platform. Yes. And we used to, and we used to always rag on the big red bus, like the double decker red bus in New York is exactly what we're not going after. <laughs> so like all, like we want to aggregate existing activities mm. uh, and there was a lot of pressure too. And it is it's a much higher bar because you're not aggregating yes. your creation yes. and distribution. And so, but we got really, really good at it. Like we were excellent at it. We, and I mean, this, uh, frankly, that's why we got acquired was because, you know, we were having trouble figuring out demand. We launched a couple cities. We did a partnership with Groupon to sell some art of our inventory on their platform, non-discounted, interestingly enough. Mm. And they saw that like when they were putting our stuff in like the subject lines of emails, people opened them because they were oh. super interesting. And so they were like, Hey, so like we hadn't figured out demand, but we were excellent at supply. And they were like, Hey, why don't you come here and be part of Groupon and do it that way? And so that's what led to us going there. See, that's fascinating because so it reminds it makes me think about your background, right? Creative marketing. Did that play a big role in creating this? Oh, supply? huge, huge. I mean, it was for a few reasons, right? One, it's what's the idea and kind of how do you take a creative person and build a good experience around it? How do you help somebody be a good host who is not a host or a tour guide or anything? So yeah. like, we had a four page booklet of like how you build good experiences. We ended up coming up with a format of how do you write up a description, right? So we ended up having a 13 page style guide of like, this is how you explain the experience. Every title has to start with a verb. Mm -hmm. The first paragraph's goal is to do this, never say this, mention what's included in the third paragraph. We were super prescriptive yeah. about how to build it. I figured one, at one time when we were getting acquired, we actually had to kind of price out what is our production cost for an experience. We figured it was about $180 because it was like within kind of three hours. Because you would have a template. Total effort. Yeah, template. We were just we got really, really good at it. That's fascinating. Makes me think, you know, this is our season one of podcast. I'm writing the playbook right now. How long this episode yep. should be? Yeah, I mean, that's what we did. We you, right. you do it a few times and then you kind of mm -hmm. see what works and what doesn't. And then, yeah, you just have a flow. Right? And then it just makes it easier and better to just kind of fly through it each time, right? And then for that Wall Streeter, what was the incentive? So, I mean, they, you charge for, so his name was Rasanath. Rasanath is an incredible individual. Um, he, you know, because he was a monk, he was charging like $20 a person, four people at a time. And it was really a donation to the monastery. So oh. he had a very different motivation than I would say most hosts. But for most hosts, it was, Financial. you know, partly it was fun, but then it was commercial, right? You could yeah. make a couple extra hundred bucks doing whatever it is you love to do. Graffiti, jazz musician, photographer, architectural tour. I mean, we had tons of crazy stuff. 
it was definitely a mix of them. I would say the money was the grease that made somebody like participate in the experience, mm -hmm. but everybody who kind of stuck with it and built an interesting little side business on it, like it just enjoyed it. It was just That's fascinating. We're talking now in 2023, creator economy, right? It's almost like that's a little bit of a, I can imagine that idea coming back a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, Airbnb launched their experiences right. business, right? Like it, it ended up being, a, you know, kind of what they saw as like a core part of their brand and offering. To differentiate, um, not just a place, yeah. but also an experience. Right. It's just, I mean, and, and so, you know, they they obviously do it in a travel context. We decided to do it in a more of a local context, like, like find, mm -hmm. yeah, interesting things going on in your city. But yeah, there was, there was one woman. So we, one of the ways we experimented uh, with like how we found people. So like sometimes we would read newsletters about mixologists and reach out to them. Mm -hmm. uh, we also just tried posting ads randomly on like Craigslist. <laughs> there was a woman who responded to an ad on Craigslist who was a former uh, chef at uh, Aquavit. She was like a sous chef at Aquavit. And she wanted to start doing dinners in her home. So she started hosting dinners in her home. Uh, after I, like, I met her at like to get coffee and then helped her set it up. She, it was actually the very first side tour I ever went on was hers. It's a woman named Elise Kornack. Uh, it got so popular that she ended up opening a little studio restaurant down the street from her apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, it was like two seatings a night, 12 people at a time ended up earning a Michelin star. No way. Just, like this is so it's like a story. A, like a woman who like who came through Craigslist ended up starting her journey on side tour that led to her private dining studio that got a Michelin star. So it was just like super fun, incredible business, but also impossibly hard to scale. Right. So was, scale on the, the supply side as an example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that must mean made a really good pitch story. Where we were digging them. Yeah. But actually if I but actually that kind of story gives people hope as well, that things, great things can happen if we come together, right? And she didn't yep. think she could, but you came along and then there's this little platform called Site Tour and then experiment and that little experiment can grow into something amazing, something so unattainable, like a mentioned star, but it happened in the most, yeah. time, right? And yep. that's actually really hopeful. Actually, even I, like first time I'm listening about this, I'm like, you know, give me hope. We could do things. Yeah, it was just, I mean, it was an easy way to take a little jump mm -hmm. towards what for some people became a big thing. We also had, uh, I think we had a total of three couples meet who ended up getting married on different side tours. <laughs> and we had one proposal that happened on a side tour. Wow. So that was just yeah, incredible business. It was like, it was so fun. And, you know, I'm just a New Yorker through and through. And it was all focused on New York at first. And it was just amazing. It reminds me of maybe a derivative business, which is unique experiences for people who are dating. And then the metric is really about, right? Because actually that's really hard to do. Well, it's funny. We, um, what was the name of that business? How about we? I remember there was a dating yeah. website called How About We. My co-founder of Side Tour went on a date with a girl from How About We that he ended up marrying. Mm. So same, same thing. They went on experience. New experience. Started dating, dated for a couple of years, got married, has two kids. Wow. Okay, so let's talk about Groupon. Yeah. Wow, what a disaster that place was. <laughs> 18 months at Groupon. What was, this, what oh, was surprising? Yes. What was, you know? So Groupon is an interesting business, right? Like Groupon, you know, if you remember 
at the time yeah. when it first launched was like the hottest thing in the world and yeah. at one point was like the fastest growing company of all time mm -hmm. right? and not so, chicago based it was like oh the first midwest right big company. yeah yep uh and just really wacky culture yeah right yep um and so the business just exploded uh, as part of that explosion they literally like duct taped their products and their tech together uh and then when it kind of started to flatten out, it's one of those things, right? Where when you're eccentric and your business is growing, you're amazing. Mm -hmm. But then when you're eccentric and your business isn't growing, you're all of a sudden become a liability. Yep. Right? So Andrew Mason, you know, who's I think a super smart dude and builds a super interesting culture, ended up leaving. And so Eric Lefkowski was kind of the initial funder of it. Lightbank was his, the name of his fund and they kind of incubated it. So he ended up becoming the CEO. And they had a whole vision of building the OS of local commerce. Mm. And so there was a bunch of companies that they acquired at the time. And so we were one of them. And so that was really our function. Our function was to change people's perception of what a Groupon is and find interesting, unique inventory you can't find anywhere else. And when you get a Groupon email, you know, instead of a discount at a batting cage being in the subject line, you get jazz concert and a fish fry at right. a Brooklyn Brownstone. Right. Who doesn't open that? Everyone opens that. Email, yeah. Right. And so just like the open rates from our content were just, so we, and, and we came in, I think we were in three or four cities and then exploded to like 26 within six months. Um, so it was a lot of fun, but that, that business kind of ran itself. Right. As far as like that, that became not about our product, but our inventory. Yeah. And so me on the product side, ended up sort of becoming the head of product for what we called G Live. So it was a, a joint venture between Live Nation Ticketmaster and Groupon. And because they they sold a lot of tickets to live events, right? That was, mm. was kind of like a yield management strategy yep. around tickets to live events. Um, zero integration. The entire Groupon business was like run within Salesforce, which is insane. <laughs> uh, it was like auto-generating PDFs with a ticket. They were so it was just nuts. And so we took on this whole project um, called, uh, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was basically to build an integration between Groupon and Live Nation, mm. like Ticketmaster's yeah. ticketing system. So when you were actually like picking dates on the Groupon website, you were actually pulling live inventory and all that stuff. Uh, and it was just an absolutely brutal project, just horrible from like a tech perspective. We were rewriting so much stuff. Uh, tried to launch a new venture there. So we yeah. tried to pitch a business called Groupon Movies. And the whole idea was, could we, you know, at the time, I think the customer acquisition cost was like $8 or something. And so incredible. the idea was, what's that? $8, great. $8, right? And yeah. so the idea was Groupon Movies, could we sell movie tickets, but then just take all the affiliate commission and just give it back to the customer so that Groupon is always the cheapest place to mm. buy movie tickets. Mm -hmm. And then by doing that, that's just basically customer acquisition for us. Yep. So, you know, you, you just drive down customer acquisition costs. And so we went to trade shows for, you know, national exhibitors, trade shows and stuff and, and kind of and designed the whole site and pitched it and just couldn't get traction on it. So then we ended up pitching a whole vision, how to like reinvent, tours and activities and, and, and local content on Groupon. Mm. So we started that, but it was just, it was just miserable. Like I did not enjoy it at all. Was it because the tech was, was it, hard? What was the, I think it was, what was hard about it? Yeah. 
I think it was three things. Um, and to his credit, Eric Lefkowski is one of the most impressive people I've ever met. He was super supportive. So I, I you know, I went in and pitched like, Hey, I'm going to need like a million and a half dollars to go rebuild this whole thing. And he was like, done. So, good dude. Uh, you can see why he's like started four big companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a mix of n- not being like a tech company, really, mm-hmm. right? Like trying to like reinvent tech and trying to build a tech platform at a place that that really wasn't their DNA. It was like a very sales driven culture. So that mm-hmm. was hard to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, the second was just like Groupon was in the middle of reinventing itself to begin with. Yes. Right. And so like that was just a hard thing to deal with. Um, and then just, you know, trying to be a change agent from the New York office when it's based in Chicago. Mm. And so, mm. you know, the guy, like, like the scope. So if I always think that if I had, if they somehow group on movies would have worked as like an idea and like, go get that started. Um, I would have been there longer. Yeah. But I, the thing I got caught reinventing was like such a core piece of the business that like I couldn't affect it the way I wanted it to. Yeah, that's that's a very. I think that's something that a lot of people can resonate with. It doesn't have to be someone who's acquired, right? Came in through acquisition, but many people go into a company thinking, or not thinking at the beginning, but imagining have an idea and pitching it. And that pitching process is brutal because yeah. the incentive structure, you know, if Groupon was Groupon public at the time already, or is it? Yeah, Groupon was public. Oh, probably yeah. even harder, right? So, yep. So, because even though you can see it, to make to adjust the system to make it work, to carve out the funding, the team, this right revenue is it predictable? Not predictable. That's not quite. Yep. I I can definitely relate to. You know, it's not the quality of the idea, but it's yeah. It's just right? there's a lot a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, to, to it, make right? it I think another thing that. So, so learning about kind of a starter acquisition and lessons learned for the second one, when we came in the group on, like we broke up, right? So I was in the product org engineers ended up in the, the engineering org mm. you know, design, like our, our host acquisition people ended up in uh, the sales group. Yeah. So we kind of all broke up yeah. and then had different bosses. And so like, that was kind of a, that was, I was hard culturally. Right. Yeah. So I think that also led you to feel like, like one again. Bunch. Hmm. Yeah. So did you do it differently the second time? We did. You did. So that was one of like the main things mm. that when we came into Adobe, uh, we stayed a unit. And so when we were in XD, we were a unit. When we, you know, we can go through the Adobe journey, but I yeah. think for one year, like maybe year three, we broke up for a year and engineering went into engineering and it didn't work. And so we kind of rolled it really? back all. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, okay. Let's talk about Spring. Yeah, say spring. My baby, my second child. The second child. Say spring. Say spring. Well, That's how we met. I still remember as that an office investor. visiting you, yep. checking out the interface, uh, Alexa. It's just the say spring will forever be my like the best idea I've ever had in my life. Like it was just so so out of left field, and it was like so. Th- I mean, it's funny thinking about a collection of of life experience and, and professional experience that leads you to have an idea that I think was just super unique. Like, mm-hmm. so the, the big insight was, um, so we left Groupon and I left Groupon at the time with my two co-founders from the mm-hmm. first business. So we all left like in the same week. Uh, and we sat in an office and we're like, we're going to come up with the next big idea. 
So we sat there and we never came up with something we were all excited about. But one of the things we did is spend a bunch of time looking into um, like it's what was called silver tech at the time it was a bunch of like uh, of software solutions for aging populations. Uh, and so I got, and this is kind of right when, you know, voice assistants started to, to take off mm. uh, and the, the echo was introduced. And so I got really fascinated with the idea of like voice assistants mm. for aging populations. Uh, and as a design and prototyper, I'm used to designing and prototyping mobile apps, websites. Uh, and then when I went to go play around with voice, like there was nothing. Mm. And so I was like, oh, like we just, we just need design and prototyping for voice as well. Yeah. And at the time there were like a lot of like chatbot builders. Yes. There were like no code chatbot builders that then introduced voice features. But, and the idea was, you know, you could deploy it at the end. And so a lot of the stuff for these platforms was, was kind of repurposed chatbot builders. Uh, but I was like starting from scratch. And so the whole idea was like designers need simple tools without understanding how voice tech works. That just lets you do basically like if thens, right? Like yes. if, if somebody says this, say that back and then being able to connect it to a device without deploying it. Uh, and so, I mean, it was, it was so simple that it was like the first rails app I've ever built. Like I taught myself Ruby on rails mm -hmm. in order to build say spring. Like that's how straightforward it was. Uh, but nobody had anything like it. No. Yeah. And so it was, you know, so, so really early on before we even read, so we, you know, I, I built a prototype. And then had an opportunity to meet the team at ERA, which is another accelerator here in New York. Yeah, ERA. Uh, yeah. It was amazing. So joined that accelerator and the little money from that, let me bring my buddy Scott on as the co-founder. And when we first met Koivin, who is from Adobe, he was like the lead designer in Adobe XD. We got introduced to him. I remember meeting him in the conference room and I gave him a demo of it. And he was just like, he goes, I don't. I don't want to be that guy. He's like, I feel like I should have thought of this. It seems so <laughs> obvious, like this needs to exist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, are you guys working on anything like this? He's like, no, not at all. And so he was, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was an excellent demo. You open a laptop, you type something, you turn to the Echo device, you talk to it, it says it back. Yeah. Like live. Yeah. Right. It's such a good demo. And, 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 you know, people started using it. Growth took off really quick. Uh, so I didn't know this at the time. But so Koi goes back to Adobe and we hadn't even raised our round. And he was like, I found this team we need to acquire. And everyone's like, yeah, we don't know what our voice strategy is. He's like, no, this is our voice strategy. Like mm -hmm. these guys, this, and you know, I, I've used Adobe tools my whole life. Like I speak that language, right? I, that's how I think about the world of design and prototyping. Uh, so Koi basically went on like a secret charm offensive on our behalf inside Adobe for like mm -hmm. six months. Uh, he did a whole interview with us on his blog. He has a very popular design blog called Subtraction. Uh, so we ended up doing an interview on it and I didn't know it at the time. And, and so he later told this whole story. Uh, and so I didn't know it at the time, but that article was really to pass around inside of Adobe. Mm, I remember and reading he ended it up giving it to afterwards. Yeah, it was, yes. mm -hmm. it, it, it was, I mean, it was super fun and it wasn't, you know, a puff piece. Like he, you know, asked me hard questions. Um, and then. I had a call with Corp Dev and we were just thinking about building like plugins for other design tools. And so we had like a working demo of a sketch plugin. Mm. And so when I went to go meet the team at Adobe, they thought that they were just going to see 
the plugin say spring platform yeah. but they saw the no they didn't even know at the time oh so they saw it so when i met with with koi and the, the vp at the time of of adobe xd uh i showed the plugin and they were like oh like i, I hadn't even thought of like how that fits into our tools and stuff and so that just became like an acquisition conversation that's that fascinating you but you just, didn't you go should, in you should come here but that's really interesting because Actually, this is actually fascinating because I didn't even know about this backstory around the plugin, but the plugin was the missing piece, the bridge between yes. independent tool and their whole complicated ecosystem. Yes. And what's funny is the way it came mm. to be was, um, so there was really no established workflow for like working in voice design, right? Usually people were making some sort of flow chart in some tool. And then they were working with a developer to like yeah, stand exactly. up a prototype, yep. right? And so we were meeting with the team at VaynerMedia, uh, Gary's, yeah. uh, Gary V's firm, yep. and met with the design team there. And so it was just like a show me how you work. And they had a sketch document that had like this flow chart in it that they were just like adding all of the utterances and stuff like into the sketch file. I was like, that's insane. Like, why, why would you do this? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, so it was such a weird workflow that I was like, so shocked that somebody had a come up with, but then was like doing, and like, this is how they were running, you know, uh, huge engagements with major brands. Um, that like a couple of weeks later, I, uh, we went to, there's a campground in upstate New York. That's like Yogi bear. It's like called Jellystone. So it's all Yogi bear branded. And so me and my family went with my daughter at the time was, I guess, four ish, three, uh, and we, and we go there for the weekend. And I remember at some point, like my wife brings my daughter to the little playground that's there. And I'm just like sitting on the little porch of this cabin, drinking a beer at like two o'clock on a Saturday. And I'm just sitting there and I'm, it just falls in my head. And I keep thinking about it. I was like, I can't believe they use Sketch. That's so weird. I was like, I bet we could just take a plugin and make a plugin for Sketch that like we could just take all of their utterances from the Sketch file. And then just like have it work the same way it works in the say spring platform. And I was like, oh, I was like, I'm going to talk to the team on Monday when I come back about that. So like, mm -hmm. I come in Monday morning. I was like, I have this idea. I came up with it at Yogi Bear drinking a beer. I was like, we should have a sketch plugin. They're like, I don't even understand how that would work. Mm. So like we sit down, we go through how it would work. I had the team at say spring, just excellent engineering team. Scott is, is brilliant. And so we just dig into it and they're like, yeah, I think we can do it. We can just like make this plugin shell. It's basically just a web website front end. It's just hitting the same back end. Like it doesn't even seem that hard. It seems pretty straightforward. Like the APIs for sketch are, are pretty straightforward. Mm. Uh, and so we built like a working prototype and we were like, oh, this is interesting. And so we were, we were going to start like reaching out to some people and get more feedback on it. We didn't even get to that point. Uh, and I remember Scott and one of the other engineers on our team, Blake, uh, were going to October. They were buddies when they joined. Uh, and so they were going to Oktoberfest. And I had a meeting coming up. And I was like, you guys aren't allowed to go to Oktoberfest together until you finish the plugin. Like, I need a workable demo. So they're like, okay. So they got done like a week. And then, then I started to demo it to a couple people. Mm. And then I ended up having it ready to go. Like two weeks later, I went and met with Adobe and showed it to Adobe. And that was just like it. They were just like, oh, yep. And we should just bake it all natively into XD. And so that's what ended up happening. And so, and so that was, I think we raised our money in May, 2017. We talked to Corp Dev July, 2017. We met with Adobe October, 2017. 
And then that conversation just kind of stretched its way out. And then we ended up announcing acquisition like April, 2018. Mm. And so it was, it was 11 months. Incredibly fast. Wild. Incredible. So yeah. Um, and, and back to like, I love Adobe and have used Adobe tools my entire career. I didn't even try and go get a different offer. Like I was like, I want to go to Adobe. I totally want to go there. So it was definitely not trying to sell the business. It was an excitement about going to Adobe. Yeah. It's almost like now you have a distribution natively with the right people who should be using this in the first place. Yeah. And it was, it was funny too, when we were talking to the PR team, when we were going to announce this, um, because we were going to integrate it into XD, we didn't want to announce that our team was joining XD. So like the announcement's like super broad that like SafeSpring and their voice technology is becoming part of Adobe and will be part of Adobe products, but like didn't say XD or what the plans were. Uh, so it was very secretive while we were building it. And I remember talking to the PR person. She was like, everybody's going to know this is for Adobe XD. It's design and prototyping. I'm like, no one's going to, I promise you, like no one's even thinking about Audio. the voice problem this way. Yeah. I was like, everybody thinks our competitors are like all these chatbot builders. Like nobody's even thinking about voice and design tools. And nobody picked up on it. Like mm. no, and, and no one ever built that sketch plugin otherwise. Nobody ever did like another design focused tool just like that. Like it was a completely unique idea. And, fr and frankly, like perfect for Adobe. Right. Like yeah. when I think of, sure, you could have got acquired as a tool, maybe a Google or, you know, Amazon, but it was like just perfect for Adobe. And we were just like the right DNA for Adobe. Yeah. It makes a lot. Yeah. It's, there's actually a lot to unpack, but also describe like the characteristics. You had a good product market fit for a very niche, right? Set of use case that is emerging. And there was a lot of experimentation, even brands. And I think the fact that brands were behind it was a big push. It was not just yep. it was actually brands trying to figure this out, even though that yep. did fizzle out the chatbot phase, if you will, right? Fizzled out because they couldn't yep. make it smart enough to be useful enough, yep. it couldn't scale more efficiently, and so on. But it's making way back, right? That's gonna come back. It AI, is. It right? is. Turns out to be a technology problem. It's, I would argue it's partly a design problem too. Yeah, and actually, I think voice actually makes way back because you can actually be smarter. It wasn't just right. It was not yep. deterministically flow that you map out. Now is actually so. I'm actually excited to see that coming back, chatbot, audio interface combined with AI yep. um, equals the utility, then therefore dollar will flow to it. So, okay, so Adobe, let's talk about the world of audio. Yeah, so one of the goals of the acquisition, there was like three stated goals. And the third stated goal was to come up with a broader voice strategy for Adobe. And... The interesting thing is like we got acquired into Adobe XD, right? And and like any group, like they were very focused on Adobe XD, right? Mm -hmm. Like they weren't thinking a broader voice strategy for Adobe. But that was kind of, you know, that's why I wanted to go to Adobe. Like, cause I wanted to, you know, play big. And so we basically came up with the site. So it would have been really easy to be like, oh, we should, you should be able to talk to Photoshop or we should have like a creative cloud voice assistant. Uh, but we took a step back and we were just like, you know, in a, in a world of voice interfaces, in a world where all audio hardware is smart, right? Where we all wear AirPods all the time. Like, what does the world of spoken audio consumption look like? And like, then what does like audio content creation look like? And Adobe has Audition, which is probably like the most popular software for working with, for pros working with spoken audio. Um, 
but audio is just so much bigger than that. And so we basically came up with this vision of an AI first platform for working with spoken audio. And so our AI strategy was basically, let's look at all of the pieces of working with audio and what makes it hard for people or time consuming for people mm -hmm. who still know how to do it. And then where can we use AI to attack those problems? And so we kind of had four main start, three main starting points, but then I'll tell you how we got to the fourth one. Uh, it was basically text-based text editing. So text-based editing had been sitting in Adobe research since 2014. Wow. Like it was just like an intern worked on it and nobody ever productized it. The research group was trying to productize it, but nobody in the product teams had picked up on it. It was called Project Lex. So we were just like, yeah, Lex is the starting point here. And then there was a service that became our enhanced speech service, which takes any spoken audio and makes it sound like it was recorded in a studio. Mm. And then they had something that became Mic Check, which was an AI service that gives you a bunch of feedback in your recording environment, gain settings on your mic, all that good stuff. And so the idea was like, let's focus on making sure people have really good audio. And then like, let's make it easy to work with the content of that audio. Yep. Because like, if we could solve those problems for people, like that just completely opens up the world of working with audio. So that was our starting point. And so pitched it to, you know, my boss in the XD group. He's like, oh, it's amazing, but it's really hard to get new stuff started at Adobe. And then I pitched it to the VP and he was like, oh, that's really interesting. It's really hard to get stuff started at Adobe. And I would just like pitch people over and over. Oh, that's really hard. So I finally reached out to Scott Belsky, who was our chief product officer. And I just met with him for 30 minutes, maybe it was even 15. And I was just like, are you ready for a big idea? If I go spend time putting together a big idea and bring it to you, are you going to listen to it? He goes, yeah, I'll listen to it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to schedule time with you in two weeks. So go back. We put together this whole deck about what this pitch is, what this platform should look like. You know, it was also, it wasn't just a product too. It's like Adobe is a very product centric company. Like mm -hmm. we think in the logos of our flagships. Yeah. So it was also like a platform pitch though, right? How do we also use a product strategy to also build an audio platform that is then going to bubble up throughout all of our other tools. I think that's an interesting point. What's the difference to you between a product and a platform? To, I mean, to me, it's like, like in an Adobe context, it is a downloadable piece of software that is like sitting on somebody's computer that's product. versus like a, a surface that is connected into a whole bunch of services. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think for, mm -hmm. you know, Adobe, we came up with the subscription business, which is maybe one of the, best business Game model changing. innovations of all time. Yeah, Game changing, right? Chantanu is a brilliant, brilliant person. But to be fair, we called it Creative Cloud, but it wasn't really cloud, right? It was cloud subscription for was, downloadable software. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so starting a couple of years ago, and then this is, I think, going to be the next five to 10 years of Adobe, is truly building a creative cloud. Right. And, yeah. and building a lot of web surfaces and interconnected APIs in the back end that handle lots of AI stuff, file transfers, right? All that yeah. stuff. And you see it like Photoshop introduced cloud docs where now it's all stored there and you can collaborate and invite other people into it. So the company's clearly getting there. I mean, it's a, it's a big lift for a company it's that's huge. been around yeah. for 40 years. Um, but so we had this, this vision and so put together this crazy deck and was getting ready for my meeting with, with Belsky and realized a couple days in advance that I was like, I'm going to go pitch the power of audio with a visual slide deck. 
And I was like, I feel like that. I'm like playing everybody else's game. I was like, I'm doing something wrong here. <laughs> so we came up with the idea to do a mini podcast to pitch the idea. And so within two days, we made five episodes that were all two minutes each. And it was like the introduction of the idea, what is happening in the world of audio, what we propose to build, how that would impact our customers, and then what the ask is. And so five days before, like, I think we were meeting on a Tuesday and like Friday morning, I like sent him an email with the little podcast series in it. And I was like, all I ask is that you listen to this before we meet. So he's like, fine. I think it was like 12 minutes, 13 minutes of content total. An hour before we meet, I get a message from him and he says, totally sold. Let's just spend that time thinking about how we make this happen. And so like never saw a visual image of it, never saw what the product experience was going to be like, never saw the size of the market or what's the TAM. It was just the opportunity and the way we told the story coupled with the ask. I mean, the ask was literally like, hey, let the five of us go work on this. So it wasn't like, hey, we need 30 people. So it was like a pretty easy ask. And it was also, I think, coupled with we had made what felt like the right size voice and audio investments in XD. Right. And so it was kind of like, you know, our, our team could do more here. Uh, plus there is something about, so this, I mean, this is one of the reasons I'm a huge believer in the power of audio is what's called the parasocial relationship. It's the reason why we think parasocial relationship is when you think you know somebody who like has no idea you exist, right? So like the way we like feel like we know podcast hosts, the way people feel like connected to Peloton instructors, like that strong parasocial relationship is it's super powerful. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that the pitch was like my voice in somebody's ear for 12 minutes, like that's, it's just powerful. It makes a big difference. It, there's no distracting slides. You're walking through the world and like Mark Webster is like talking to you for 12 minutes in your ear, in your head. And like, I think that was a big part of like the power of that pitch. I honestly, I am fascinated. Like, I'm dumbfounded actually, because I just realized as you were describing how you pitched to Scott, imagine the thousands, hundreds of thousands of VC pitches that are in decks yeah. right now. I mean, why doesn't every CEO of every company release a five-minute weekly podcast that all of their employees was audio only every week? Audio only, yes. Yeah, buried in your—I mean, it's literally burying a voice in your head. Like, how powerful is that? Do you feel if you do you feel this is audio only, audio with transcript that you can see, audio and video? audio, video, and transcript, kind of like you do sound social today, which one's more powerful to form that parasocial relationship, you feel? I definitely, I, I think audio only with headphones on, walking through the world, you know? Like, I, I think that I think that is like one of the most powerful ways to connect with people because you're, you're getting them when they're doing something else, right? It's usually, you're, you're usually occupying their brain while like their body is doing something else. Right, it's occupying, right? I'm folding laundry. I'm listening to something. Right, folding laundry, driving. you're on the subway, you're driving, but like you're occupying their mind. And we have, there's no visual distraction, right? Like we're still, you know, just got the lizard brain, right? We're still just monkeys. Like, so like we're, our brains are always constantly evaluating what's in front of us, making sure nothing's going to attack us, right? Like there's a whole bunch of ways that visual stimuli affect you and affect your brain. But when you can like separate those things out, and the visual stimuli is related to like the task that you're just trying to complete. 
but like your brain is just completely focused on the audio content. I think it's super powerful. That's, that's an idea to play off as well. I imagine if I'm on Instagram Reel, instead of everything is visual first, a sound second, yep. that there is an option to actually, well, for certain, maybe I can choose as a creator, this is a sound first. So, so it's, I think it's, an, it's also important the way you create content, mm. right? Like some, some content is meant to be visual, visual first, right. right? Listening to a movie would be pretty, right. some movies would be, would be boring, right? Um, so I think like you need to think about like, what is the, you also need to think about the function of it, right? So putting an audio file on Twitter wouldn't work, no. right? When they tried to do Text, voice yeah. tweets, like that didn't work. Yep. Um, but when you're going through your, your newsfeed and you see a audio clip with just like the animated text captions that captures yeah. your visual attention as well. Like that's pretty powerful. Yeah. But like when it just comes to like the parasocial relationship, you know, it's funny. So I'm a Peloton guy and I got a Peloton during the pandemic and all of the, they were no longer classes, right? They were just the instructor. Yeah. And so like the, my, the first two years of the Peloton experience, it's basically just you and the instructor. They were in empty studios. And now they've started to reintroduce people back into the studio. And I find it interfering with the parasocial relationship. It was a little bit like, hey, I thought this was just me and you. <laughs> now, like, you're in a room with all those people. Now I'm just, like, a bystander, uh, right? It's, like, not core of the experience. Like, I feel it, like, viscerally that, like, the experience feels different in classes where there's people. And I go out of my way to pick classes where last there is no studio. Oh, really? That's fascinating. You, you give me a bunch of ideas just thinking about, but that, that almost like recognizing the parasocial is key to the pitch. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's was, a powerful, that's a powerful. Yeah, insight. super important part. And it, it also, I mean, for, for Belsky too, he's a super visual guy, right? As, as I mean, most of us are. Yeah. And uh, whenever you present to him, he gets like really in the weeds. He's just like, Hey, like, have you thought it. about this experience? Yeah. Right. Like, where does this thing go when you click this thing? Yeah. Right. Like why, where, where is the user in the experience when they're seeing this page? Mm -hmm. And I actually think presenting without a product, let him, yeah. already, I, mean, I never actually asked mm -hmm. him this question, but like, let him focus on just like the overall concept. Like, right. And, there's a parallel to using documents as a narrative versus using visuals as a, as a deck. Like I prefer narratives yes. similarly. As a matter of fact, I actually wish there's a plugin, this is probably one, where it just reads documents to me. Um, then I would yeah. listen to it because I just want to hear the flow and the connective dots. And then I can pause any time to focus on it and say, hey, what was that quote? That was interesting. But I have the visual to go back. Yeah, that's, that's a famous yeah. part of the Amazon culture, right? right. That you can't Amazon hide behind culture. your deck. You can't culture. hide behind the visuals. The six pager, the famous six pager. Um, yep, it'd be awesome. I want so we, so parts. so we started. So he he let us go do this. Yep. Uh, reported into him directly for the first three quarters of of building this, just to give us some freedom to like figure out what we want to build here exactly, like what the opportunity was, and the very first week, our entire team worked on it. Was the first week of the lockdown. Oh, and so this is it, the whole entire thing has been built during the pandemic. Uh, and it's funny, there was 
uh, you know, so we have a feature. So this goes to what I was saying was kind of the fourth um, feature. So we had this vision for working with audio, uh, but we didn't include recording in it. So we thought we were editing and it was text-based editing and it was, um, you know, the two services to make sure the input sounded good wherever you were recording it and yep. then making sure that, you know, we had this AI service that made it sound good. And so we didn't plan to have a recording functionality, but then the pandemic hit. And then even if you were a professional, recording good audio content was really, really hard. People weren't getting in the studio anymore. And so we decided to wrap in uh, recording as part of it. And one of the pieces of that was to have local recording happen, right? So I can send you a link. We both record. It merges the file in the background, right? Then you can edit it. So the recording piece only came because like, as we were building this, the world changed on us. And so we were like, in order to deliver our vision, we need to like figure out recording as well. That's interesting. Cause when, when you guys launched beta, it was recording was at the forefront. How do you make it sound yes. good? And what yes. happened to Lex? So, so one of the, so, so, so Lex as a, as a product never went anywhere. I mean, it was, you know, developed yeah. within research. And so our, our plan was really to kind of take the thinking and the research behind Lex and kind of really oh, productize it. Mm -hmm. But Lex was very focused on just like text-based editing. Uh, so research had like a bunch of projects, right? So they had Lex, which was text-based editing. They had what was called Awesomeizer, which we renamed Enhanced Speech. <laughs> Researchers have amazing names for things. Uh, and then what became Mic Check. And so we were like, hey, like, let's kind of bundle those things together uh -huh. in what this experience is. And then because re the recording piece of it changed, we included recording and then solved a bunch of the quality issues by also having local recording and so and merging the files. And then it, that's also going to give us a bunch of cool. So it's funny, most people who use podcasts, like you have no idea that it's recording the files locally uh, and uploading them in the background. But by doing that, we're able to run the enhanced speech service on each track individually, which makes it sound much better. And it's going to set up a bunch of cool stuff we can do to like manage crosstalk. So like we're doing a whole bunch of work to like eliminate crosstalk, automatically slide things apart. Because if they're different tracks, you can do that kind of stuff. So right. there's going to be a bunch of AI stuff that comes out that is empowered by the fact that we have individual tracks, even if the user never knows that that happened. Oh, that's fascinating. So, okay, can are you could you talk about a bit more about a future kind of what can people anticipate? Yeah. So so I mean, it was funny. We actually we tried to pitch Adobe on letting us release just the recording piece with transcription, no editing in summer 2020. I was like, that was the first thing we built. We built the recording. We would do daily stand up in it every morning. And we were like, we should like, that's the problem. Literally everybody has now. Yeah. Of like just recording. We, you know, it was before some of the other products that are in the market, you know, are, are doing a better job solving that I would say now. Um, but it was like a big problem. And so we were just like, let's just release this. Let's just, you know, we're, Startup DNA, we move fast. And, you know, it was like, ah, this is Adobe. We need to like figure out editing. It needs to be an end-to-end -end solution. I'm like, okay. So, you know, it took us another 18 months to build um, the, the, the editing piece. Uh, and even today, we're still behind a wait list. Uh, we're hopefully dropping that pretty soon. Um, but so then we've, just, you know, we launched, we announced what, what became Project Shasta. Right. In December, 2021. Uh, 
and launched it on Product Hunt for the wait list and like huge response. People loved it. And I think for a few reasons. One, I think it looks very different than stuff. I think a lot of people have a perception of what Adobe products are because mm-hmm. it's Photoshop. Yeah. So everyone thinks Photoshop and Photoshop is a fighter jet. I mean, it's mm-hmm. complex because it needs to be complex. It's, you know, like yeah. the most used design tool in the world. Um, and so it was colorful. We had a good brand, right? We would call Shasta. We didn't even say it. We said it was like from Adobe Labs, but we didn't call it. A, we just called it Project Shasta. Uh, and then a big part of it was like, we were super forward with like, there are real people building this. Like I'm all over Twitter responding to people. The sample project is me and our lead designer talking. Our big video is Sam, our lead designer, doing a walkthrough of the product. So like any place you touch what is now podcast, what was Shasta at the time? Like it was very apparent there were people behind this. This wasn't just the monolith of Big Adobe yeah. releasing some new product, right? That's actually how and I that, found out. So we, I think it was on Twitter I found out. Yeah. I mean, so it's just the other community has really embraced us, uh, which is which is thrilling. And then, so we we built that and then we needed to get people into our beta. Mm-hmm. And so over the summer, we were just like, you know, why don't we take some of our big features, enhanced speech and mic check. And why don't we build these like single serve pages yeah. that's not behind a wait list. Anybody can go use it uh, in order to like experience what it does. Cause enhanced speech is like pure magic. Like I, at our best thing in the market by far is just like a total home run. Our research team is super brilliant. Um, and like, let's just give people a taste of it. And so we launched it in late August. Uh, and it started to take off like pretty quick mm. to the point where I, I, I was panicked of like, we are calling this project Shasta and we are building brand equity into a name like that we know is going to go away. Like we need to change the name like right away. And so somehow convinced Adobe to let us change it to Adobe podcast in October. Um, and the name change and the, the growth, it just has totally taken off. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's like one of the fastest growing new products that Adobe has ever released. Definitely one that doesn't have any marketing support. That is four yeah. people building it. I mean, it's just us because and to Adobe's market, credit. They've let us do it this way. Like the go to market was so, it's so different. Actually, I didn't, I didn't even realize at the time cause I knew you. So I didn't think sec- for a second, this is actually coming out of Adobe and you should have done this way. I was like, oh, Mark has this new product. I'm doing this podcast yep. thing. Let me try Felt this like out. Startup. But it's fascinating. How did you convince them to the PR team, like what marketing team? How did that work? So it's a, it's a mix, right? I, I think at, at its core, and the reason I'm still here five years later is like Adobe knows how to do acquisitions mm-hmm. and they understand creative people, right? And, um, you know, it's a big company. It can be hard to take risks, but yeah. I would say it's on the, the right side of risk-taking and innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've let us do a lot, right? And I think Belsky has been a great supporter of us and even protected us from the overhead of the organization in the beginning to let this mm, thing yeah. know, get some get some feet. Um, there was also a piece of it where we just didn't ask people. We just took a bunch of career risk. I was like, well, just, just launch it. it and see what happens. Yeah, just do it. See, I mean, we I don't even know if I've ever mentioned this before. Um, but when we launched our launch video for Project Shasta, uh, we never showed it to anybody. We just really? <laughs> yeah. see that? Never got approved. No legal review. Wow. Uh, which... Which is funny because it's like, you know, people, so now that Adobe Podcast is doing really well, people reach out all the time. Yeah. And they're like, hey, like, what are some secrets, you know, internally, like, what are some secrets? Like, 
lessons learned. And a big contributor to our success has been taking calculated risks of like not worrying too much about like approvals or stuff if we if we feel confident. But like you are taking on a massive risk. Yeah. And you are taking on risk on behalf of the company. It's a reputational right? risk. And, and reputational risk. Mm-hmm. And I'm always willing to put my reputation at risk and my career at risk, but at not putting Adobe at risk. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, I've been doing this a really long time. I've had plenty of jobs where I was the person approving all the creative. Yeah. The MBA was insanely strict about brand usage guidelines. So like we are tight as a drum. Mm-hmm. We are buttoned up. And so, you know, we take risks, but we take risks because like, I, I'm pretty confident that like, we're not introducing any real risk. Right. Right. And it's worked out so far. And like all of our stuff, you know, I think if you look at Adobe podcast, I mean, that's one designer and four developers. And I think we have a super high bar execution, you know, like we are really careful about like what we do with people, you know, we, we still have to go through like security, privacy review, like all that stuff. I mean, we, we have to still check the boxes, but you know, we're just like an experienced button up team who's done this before at other places and stuff. And so, you know, whereas it might seem like risk, it's, we're only taking risk when I feel really comfortable and, and right. you know, my, my boss and VP feel comfortable that like we're in a good place. Right. And so, so far it's worked. That's f- I just pictured you guys building this product within Adobe, right? Actually, when I saw it by way, from my point of view, I know many of the backstories, I thought it was very polished. I thought I the single that. utility was actually really helpful. Um, for example, I just started learning Premiere. Premiere, man, it's it's a beast. Another fighter jet. Yeah, it's another it's fighter jet. I gotta watch videos. I'm, I'm watching videos. So, but I loved about an actual podcast. I didn't. I was Adobe podcast in the story like Shasta. The podcast is very clear. It is for podcasters. Um, that's why another thing I loved about it yeah it's a very different naming strategy too right right does like, also indicate like what about xd relationship and podcast yeah it's funny because so it has nothing to do with one i mean it's designed the next day we use xd to design it mm. um when we started to build it we used the audio prototyping features we built in xd to then show how mm. the podcast would work which was fun um but, you know, so like completely unrelated in, in that respect, but our lead designer, Sam, was one of the designers on XD. Um, and, you know, when it comes to like Adobe has just world-class design organization. And so, you know, we basically, we go through reviews and like get feedback and stuff on it. Um, but, you know, again, like this company has given us a lot of latitude this and a lot of trust. It's such a good and, story. Actually, I don't yeah. hear much about Adobe in terms of we see a lot of what's on above the surface, but not about what, what you know what's behind it. Now, let's talk about the other products in this audio space. Let's yes, say, do it. What are ones that you admire? You look to and say, "Hey, that sets a new bar." Yeah, I mean, so this maybe this maybe seems like a lame answer, but like I mean, I kind of admire a lot of them. I mean, there are a lot of creative teams and people who usually go into the tool space. Um, are opinionated about it because yep. you need to be right, and so they, they may build something or do something that is not my cup of tea. Uh, but there's a lot of really interesting people out there, and so you know, wh- I mean, one of the things I love is Descript. Descript is Andrew Mason, yep, the, the CEO of Groupon, um, who then started an audio tour company called Detour, right, and then uh, that led to text-based editing, and then leaned in, um, and so you know, I think like 
text-based editing is, is coming to premiere. Like text-based editing, I think, is going to be pretty standard in every kind of video product. Uh, but give Descript a lot of credit for, yeah. you know, being kind of first to the space, <clears throat> uh, popularizing it. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, they did a great job. Um, so I think what they're doing is interesting. It's funny though, like one of the things we hear from audio creators about the script is like, as soon as you introduce video, it gets way more complicated. Yes. Right. And then one of the, like, so it, there may be a day where we introduce video as a format into podcasts, but like, I will never build a video editor in my entire life. Like as soon as you, cause as soon as you touch video, like the benefit of Adobe is that we can always send you somewhere else. Right. Yeah. But like a, an independent company can't do that in the same way. And so once you touch video, people are going to be like, I need color correction. I need a multi-track editor. You know, I need, I need titling. I need to put lower thirds on it. Yeah. And it's just, it's like a completely different direction. Right. Yeah. And so I remember when, you know, the scripts first supported video, uh, I was just like, Ooh, they're, they're in for it. Like they're going to, they, they're going to have to go build premiere. And so, yeah, I think they're doing a great job to their credit, but it's it's a very different kind of lift, right? Uh, and and I think it's really hard to have a general purpose tool in the creative tool space that doesn't become really complicated. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of where the script goes. Um, Riverside, I mean, I'll, this is a brilliant experience. right now. Yep. Yes, a brilliant experience, right? Super smart team. Uh, and, and it's uh, like almost jealous of the fact that they were able to just focus on like that one problem space. Yeah. We were just like, that's what we want to focus on. And mm -hmm. it was like, yeah, we got to branch it out. And so, you know, I, uh, very cool to see what they're building. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, there's like a lot of cool people in the space. It's funny cause I don't, I have a very weird view on competition. Mm. If you even call it competition. Um, I think good product ideas and product concepts have to be authentically created, right? So a lot of people yes. ask like, recording, are you trying to compete with Riverside? Yeah. And it's like, it came from like the problem that we saw when we were doing recording, right? When we had the other vision. Uh, and if people use Riverside, like they totally should use another product, right? Um, we don't need to be everything for everybody. Um, but I'm obsessed with watching what competitors do because it's almost like a multiverse. You're like, Right. There's another group of smart people yeah. with different life experience, different professional experience, looking at a similar problem space and like seeing the decisions they make. Yes. And so it's not that like, you know, when I look at like new features that other related products launch, I don't think of the feature. I'm like, Ooh, why did they do that? Like, what is it that made them prioritize that on the backlog? Like, why did that? Yes. The why now? Mm -hmm. Right. And so like that's fascinating to me. So like just the, the inside baseball of, of competitive products. And so, you know, sometimes I'll look at something and I'll be like, I, my theory is like, that person doesn't know what they're doing. Like I've tried to introduce that kind of feature in a product at this point, and they're going to learn that, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is. Um, but then you look at some other stuff and you just like walk through the space and you're like, yeah, why do I think they did it? And like, oh, I would guess that they were seeing people do X. And so they thought, and so it's like, that is what I like about looking at other products. Uh, and I just, you know, I love the craft of it. Like I love the game of building things. And, and so I love looking at everything. I mean, I, you can, anyone can nerd snipe me into giving a product review on anything. <laughs> because if you're just like, what do you think of this? I'm going to spend like 
30 minutes looking at it. I'm going to send you a bunch of feedback. And then like the next day, I'm going to send like additional thoughts because I was like thinking about it in the shower. Yeah. Like I just, I can't help myself. Yes. Breaking it down. Actually, I'm very similar in that way. That's why I like to try different tools, piecing together. And I think right now in, in the audio and video space, which are now overlapping. Yes. The, it's still a, a relatively fragmented workflow. And it's fragmented also based on, let's say, the type of creator you are or type of output you're, let's say, right, an audio-only podcast, a video podcast, one that is shoot in studio, in person. Actually, I have the same problem. I have, I'm pointing like some Pelican cases I have because I'm like, I want it, I need to, I need to duplicate what I do mm-hmm. on location. But at that time, I had to figure out, it's just multiply the problems three cameras, recording, same time. How do I send this back? Cloud become important. And I started looking at cloud that can upload directly to it, right? Because I'm not knowing the studio. So it's still fairly fragmented. I actually went through this over the last, you know, let's say six weeks or even longer to like really dive in. And there's still tons of product opportunities uh, in every stage of that value chain with different personas, right? And then there's also integration opportunity to make it seamless. Yeah. I mean, creativity is hard. Yeah. It's complicated. It's super complicated workflows. And, and to your point, there's so many different personas. You know, there's there's a video I share internally all the time because, you know, like any big company, we try and group people into buckets, right? Yep. So we're just like, hey, they're professionals. They're what we call communicators, which is maybe prosumer, right? And then there's like a consumer. And we and, and then so we, t- we take those categories, then we split them by genre, right? So then you're like, there's video pros, there's video communicators, or there's you know, visual design pros. Yeah. And there's this video, an interview with John Mayer, where he's giving an interview and he talks about somebody gave him a website to look at and give feedback on. And the first thing he noticed was it was a free font. And he's like, I, it was very obvious that somebody went to defont.com and downloaded a free font. And you can tell, he's like, the mind doesn't always know, but the heart knows when there's a free font. It's just <laughs> off a little, all the kerning's off a little bit, right? And he's like, and, and so I, I share that video all the time. He's like, because there's a Grammy award-winning musician talking about looking at a website and free fonts. So like creators are not simple people. Like they do not fit into like easy boxes to understand. Yes. So like workflows to some degree will always be fragmented mm-hmm. because the process of creation is just fragmented. And so there are pieces of it that like you can improve. There are pieces of it you can just totally zero in on and focus and, and improve, right? Um, but there's whenever anything, so I think it's something like 80 plus percent of people who use Premiere use plugins. Like yeah. it's really hard to just have an end-to-end product. Yes. And yeah. Even when I meet startups and their vision is to like, if you have an end-to-end product, you have to be super narrow who you're focusing on. You're just like, this is the best platform for like teachers to record a lesson plan. Like it needs to be hyper focused because if you start to just expand to like general creative workflows, especially around video, like it's hard. It's hard to just stay end to end. So like podcasts, podcasts is end to end for some people, but there are reporters who record in it and just pull out the tracks after they put enhanced speech on it. There are people who, uh, do a rough edit of the transcript, mm-hmm. bring it into audition, do the editing there. Right. Yep. I mean, so like it's, and that's fine. Like that's, there's no way to not do that. Right. So 
even, you know, which is why I put quotes around the word competitive because it's, it's an ecosystem. And so I don't think of, I think in, in these, in creative tools, I actually don't think that there's like, it's hard to have like super direct competitors. There's adjacencies, right? And so right. if they may be competitive to a piece of what you're doing, but right. there's, this is a big market. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pie out there for everybody. And we actually do need the assortment, like the assortment of tools because when it comes to craft, the depth is so important. That's why yes. there's so many tools we can use for recording, but choosing Riverside is right. It's a specific reason for that. It's actually not, not just a user interface or the flow, but the output, for example, right? The quality I can, I can, it's very little things, actually little, little options without that little one option is no longer yeah. differentiated. And, and you have to be fanatical to yeah. like build something great in that space. And mm -hmm. so like, we're, we're never going to have a recording workflow that's like as smooth as Riverside because like that's what they're focusing on. Mm -hmm. And if Riverside tomorrow was like, and I don't know why we're picking on Riverside, just because we're in it. <laughs> we're in it right now. <laughs> uh, uh, like, I mean, the day that they're like, you don't need to leave Riverside and you can edit video. I'll be like, oh God, like, don't do that. Don't go build a video editor. Yeah. Like you have no idea what you're getting yourself <laughs> do into, that. right? And so it's just making sure that, you know, when I see certain products and they just introduce certain things, you're like, oh, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. It's going to be a mess. Yeah. Well, Descript is interesting. I'm definitely watching. I'm using Descript. I've watched it for the last, I would say, four years. I've started using the video because I'm editing the transcript inside of it. They introduce like things like scenes and transitions and low, like low, like exactly what you're saying, low thirds. I'm learning it. And then I'm still exporting it out into Premiere, the fitting shop, right? For example, well, how do I want to frame us, right? What, what, what's the overlay? Yep. I'm adding sound, you know, introduction and so on and so forth. And that and exporting, but then once I, what's interesting about the flow is I can't really, it's actually fairly, fairly a one directional flow I found in podcasts, at least in my right now. Yeah. Meaning once I update something, I export it, it goes one direction. If I find out something, yep. I'm not going to import that back. I'm going to do it again. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, and, and, you know, you're one guy making a podcast and like, yeah. look how complicated it is. Right. I yeah, know. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. We had a, we had a lot of discussion about hierarchy mm. in podcast of like, is, so it's funny you said that, you know, just focus on podcasts. The, the irony is that like podcast is focused on spoken audio and there's not a better term for spoken audio than podcast. So like you upload a video to YouTube, but like you don't listen to audios on Spotify. Like audio isn't what you call the file format, you know, yeah. like there's not like the audio category is like really weird and broad, right? Like video, everyone's like, okay, I know what video is. And so we basically called it podcast because we're like, well, that's the closest. And like the biggest use case is probably podcasts, but voiceovers, audiobooks, right? Like little short video or audio updates, 15 second audio ads that you run on Spotify, like there's a lot of use cases, but like podcast was kind of the best term for it. But so we had a big conversation about like hierarchy. Like, are you creating a podcast and then you are creating episodes within it? And so like when I go to my dashboard, am I seeing a, a, you know, a, a podcast and I dig in and then I see the list of the episodes and some are in draft mode and some are published and right. right? And, and so the decision we made was like, let's keep it as simple as possible. Like it's, you have projects, one thing. And so if it turns out someone's doing a whole podcast series, they can have 12 projects sitting there and that they're probably only doing one podcast. But if like a pro user 
is like, hey, we actually do, you know, six podcasts and every week we do like two or three episodes. Hmm. It's just like, well, when we get to that point, we'll think about it. Like we're not there yet. So oh, like, let's I, not yeah, that's, that's, overthink this. Right. And this could be like folders, for example. And then within folders. Right. I mean, this podcast. is Premiere. It, right. You got, you got asset folders. You got yep. sequences. Yep. I mean, it's just a lot in yep. a project. And so it's a, it's a great way to make, you know, yeah. the, everything everywhere at once. It's just one best editing. It was made in Premiere. Uh, but that's really hard to like have the same tool for like a video podcast for a single creator and a major motion picture that just won best editing, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the same tool, like yes. that's, it's nuts. So like in order for that to happen, it's going to be complicated. So in order to keep something simple, you need to like be pretty focused with like what you're trying to accomplish. And so we focus on spoken audio. So, okay. So let's, let's zoom out for a second. I know we're about an hour we're uh, 25 in there, but I want to, I want to zoom in a little bit or zoom out on just product development a bit more. Yes. You talk about being focused, right? It's a really, what other things would you advices would you give? Oh, I mean, that could be like another you know, whole, long whole episode. episode. I mean, I'm that I'm fanatical yeah, about product. I mean, podcast. I mean, no kidding. <laughs> that's right. Like how many, how many folders do you have for all my thoughts on product development? Uh, I mean, I, we are, so we are fanatical about how we build stuff and our product process. Uh, you know, we were talking about sort of the glory days of 2010 New York City tech. Uh, if you remember Pivotal Labs, uh, which is still kind of around, but like Pivotal Labs at the time was a development shop in San Francisco and New York, built the first versions of Groupon, built the first versions of Twitter, uh, Ruby on Rails shop. And they had a very specific form of agile yeah. that our head of engineering from the first startup did. And like, that's what we do. And everybody in our team is one degree away from Pivotal Labs. And so everybody like follows, like, you know, we have to use Jira because it's Adobe and we can't use Tracker, but it is the way we write stories, the way we prioritize the backlog, the way we think of the problems we're solving, the way like our design process is very focused on a very specific thing that then turns into the design company gets attached to the story that we do design does all the acceptance on all the stuff we create. So, I mean, like the, the process of product development, like we are, we're very rigid with how we do it. Cause and that rigid like actually serves you versus. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, another podcaster named Jocko Willink. He was a former Navy SEAL and he has a, an expression. Oh, yeah. you know, you, you gave me the extreme ownership yeah. uh, overview. So he talks about, um, Discipline equals freedom, right? And so we are extremely disciplined in like the things that we feel like we need to be disciplined in so that we have freedom in the things yeah. that we think matter, Yeah. right? And so like we are, we move extremely fast because our process for creation is extremely disciplined, which gives us a lot of freedom to decide what to work on and to iterate and to experiment. Yeah. That's fascinating. See, that one just, you went straight to the root. Right, just like how you work manifests the decision, even like the quality decisions. It's one of the biggest pitfalls. How does a team make decision? You can often, yeah, right. You can tell is the product gonna be good or not. Yeah, and it's it's and again, right? Like we, the only thing we make decisions on are, are the things that we think are impactful because all the other decisions have already been made, right? Like the process, the mm, what is what is done mean, right. what does good enough mean. Right. Like, so we kind of have all of that buttoned up. And so this, and because of that, it lets us move fast and iterate quickly. Right. And so, you know, 
it, to have a team at Adobe that has only six weeks of line of sight ahead of it to know what we're building or what our priorities are. That's pretty rare. It is. Does the rest of Adobe work similarly or differently than the way you guys work? Wildly differently. Wildly yeah. differently. Wildly differently. Yeah. I mean, very, I mean, much. And to 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 be fair, some of it is because we have downloadable software, right? That is a thirty year old code base in some <laughs> cases in C plus plus. Yeah. Um. So structurally, there's a lot of that stuff. Uh, but you know, I think also because of that, a lot of engineering cultures have like developed in that world. Right. And yeah. so because ours comes from rails and the web and continuous deployment and all that stuff, like just the muscle memory that you have is just so different. Right. So even, even if you take somebody who's been working on downloadable desktop software for 20 years and you were to bring them into our team, just like the entire muscle memory is so different. Very different. So, yeah. And I feel you already have, it's actually very rare to hear someone who has worked with this close group of people over this long period of time and also held on to similar, like the same way of working, right? For this long period of time. It is. That is very rare. I it's hard to scale too, right? Yeah. Because I mean, especially now, anyone who has roots back to 2010 Pivotal Labs yep. is pretty experienced at this point. Pivotal Labs was an excellent machine for taking relatively junior developers and making them excellent developers. And like, I actually think that the fact that the New York tech community doesn't have that right now is a problem. And so we always kind of joke, like we want That's our true. team to be that team. That's true. We want to scale it up and we want to bring in, you know, we have enough people in our team who work that way, that if we were in a place to be able to, you know, if the macro economic environment was different, we could hire more. Like we could bring in more junior people and coach them up and like train them to like do software the way we do software. Nah. Didn't Pivotal shut down a couple of years ago? Is it what I, I feel like I'm... Yeah, so I think Pivotal... So Pivotal, uh, they got acquired by like EMC hmm. and got acquired by some other... Maybe the part of Dell now. And it was really kind of San Francisco. I'm pretty sure they shut down the New York office. Uh, but yeah, Pivotal Labs, New York City, 2010. Magical place. You remind... This conversation is taking me back. A lot of memories, for sure. Oh, yeah. Even Pivotal, I still remember going to their office. There's a huge gong. Yes. I remember that. So te Techstars took place in the Pivotal Labs office in Union Square. Like we, our, our accelerator was actually oh. in the same office. Oh. This was fun. This is this is actually, I, being, I I feel like I have a lot more questions. I have to like write, I have to cross them out. I'm like, okay, I, not, not, not for this episode because I still want to talk about Harlem, you know. There's a whole story. We probably do a podcast series, yeah. just me and you. A series, episode, season, uh, the whole hierarchy. Um, to close this out, I would say, I'm going to ask you this. For people who, I mean, you, clearly you have a very self-directed journey. Um, and I think your storytelling background actually plays, it has, has shaped your path in ways some who came from engineering background or some other background wouldn't have just because that's not natural for them. Um, and I think 2023, as we're recording right now, is a hard year for a lot of people, tech oh, yeah. and non-tech, right? Macro. And I was just speaking to like Fordham students maybe two weeks ago, and they were like, they were a little concerned. They're like, what do we do? What what can we do um, in this environment? So, Mark, to close this out, what would you? What advice would you give to people who were young, starting out? Yeah, the only 
advice I might give, uh, and this is one of those things that if I was young and somebody said this, I'd probably roll my eyes, but every, I, I've had several big moments of collapse in my professional life. So I graduated in May, 2000, right as tech yeah. exploded. Um, the first day of my honeymoon was the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed, September 15th, 2008. So I spent two weeks on my honeymoon watching the financial crisis unfold. And then when I came back, the company I worked for was no longer in business. Uh, but that led me to go on my own path. It led to startups. Uh, the, you know, graduating when I did forced me to go to the MBA and work at the MBA, which was a life-changing experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, when I left Groupon and didn't know what I was going to go do with my life, you know, it all kind of led to say spring. So I've had kind of these three big moments of despair where it felt like everything I had worked for fell apart. Uh, and then the thing that came out on the other side of it was like way better than what I had going in. So yeah. it always ended up being a really good opportunity for reinvention, you know, figuring out what you want to go do. So if I, without the life experience, if I heard that as a young person, I'd be like, yeah, okay. But it has, it has been helpful for me. And I think uh, as I see younger people develop their careers, it's usually the same case. Yeah. I actually feel like, because I do know you, I feel like you have this belief in yourself. Maybe it came from your dad, yeah. right? Like I can, if you can read, what was his quote? If you can read, you can learn. If you can read, you can do anything. You can do anything. Yeah, I can. That's actually really that's good. It, and it is. It's really empowering. Okay. If you can read, you can do anything. Actually, I, actually, actually, I'm going to teach that to my kids as well, because it can be very confusing for them what to do, what happens, right? And well, you, got, you do have to walk the walk though. It's true. Mean, it means like if you, if you bring your oil to get changed, you're not walking the walk. Yeah, we're not. I've never seen my right. father drop off the car to get the oil changed. Right. I'm terrible with drywalls. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta do, my dad did the hard work too, right? You know what? I'm producing, recording, editing my own podcast. That's true. You know, all That's new true. to me that, you know, actually I'm really enjoying it because it's actually the creative freedom. Uh, yeah. But a software I can undo. I can make copies. I can, you know, hardware, yeah. or drywall. If I mess up, and we haven't gotten. Into, I mean, your career has plenty of the same stories. So you know, I think we're. Yeah. I like to think we're modeling good behavior for our children, yes. even if it's not drywall related. <laughs> that's true, but that's my fear. I gotta face it sometime. Um, but hey, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. Always, this was fun. So much wisdom and actual real experience with folks, um, teaching them to be fearless. Thank you. All right. We'll talk soon. All righty. Take care.